Well, welcome to episode 48 of The Professor and the Hack uh, with the Professor Peter Van Onselen, um, a national political editor of the 10 Network. And I'm the Hack, Hugh Rimmonson. PVO, I, I get the feeling there's a vacuum cleaner running behind you. <laughs> no, it's not a vacuum cleaner. It's it's that outdoor bloody activity that I was talking about in the last podcast. The but anyway. Oh, God, somebody saved me. But anyway, that's all right. I'll be heading into work shortly, so... Uh, good luck to the rest of my family dealing with it. However you're <laughs> dealing with it at home, PVO's cracking under the strain. I've seen him do all kinds of things <laughs> under pressure, but uh, it's too much. Well, 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 let me start with let me start with this, Hugh, because uh, what do you think of this? You know, we see reports today as we record this about the Prime Minister in a phone conversation with the Tax Commissioner, Chris Jordan, as well as the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, on Thursday morning you know, admonishing the banks for not instantly passing on the line of credit in relation to JobKeeper, which was announced in March. And the money only flows, as we know, from the government come the beginning of May, I believe it is. So in the interim, they want, uh, you know, they've wanted the banks to, to provide a line of credit before such time as, as they provide that money themselves. Where do they get off being critical of the banks, being a little bit slow to move. And you know, I'm no natural defender of the banks. They gave them no pre-warning that they were coming up with JobKeeper. The banks found out about it when it was announced. The banks, by the way, have been deliberately excluded from being even eligible for it. Not that they've got financial woes the way a lot of other businesses do, but they are actually excluded specifically from this legislation in a way that no other business, as I understand it, is. And then what? They're meant to instantly have all the apparatus in place to deliver this while the government spends a month and a half getting its act together, having already had weeks to come up with the framing of JobKeeper with no pre-warning that they have to do it uh, all of a sudden in that instance. And then you look at the hypocrisy of this, it only gets worse when you consider that this is the same government that had the queues outside Centrelink with the website crashing, were completely unprepared for what was required in relation to changes around Newstart. The hypocrisy is staggering, yet the PM thinks he can just stand up on his pulpit and say, oh, outrageous that the banks weren't instantly ready for something that we gave them no pre-warning on, that we've given ourselves six weeks warning before we need to worry about even handing the money over. Get on with it. Provide a free line of credit via a bridging loan to businesses that need it instantaneously, never mind the uptake of the hundreds of thousands of phone calls that will suddenly be getting. I think that is exactly the kind of, if you like, hypocrisy that really annoys people about politicians, even if they don't like banks very much. How are the banks supposed to get up to speed so suddenly? Well, let me just say that indeed the world is upside down. Uh, we, uh, we've gone from bank bashing, a, a favourite sport, and often a very justified one into, uh, into running into the breach to defend the banks. But do you uh, disagree? But I think you're completely right. And it was actually, uh, you know, the warning was put up there you know, people were alive to this in the first hours after the announcement of the job mm. keeper, when it became clear that, uh, that there would be this money that would flow through effectively to subsidize the wages of staff who had been laid off. But in the interim, companies that had completely lost cash flow in order to, uh, in order to secure that future funding for their staff would have to keep paying their staff, even though they had no money coming through the door. So plainly there was going to be in the design, a difficulty with, for particularly small businesses that had gone from hundred percent to zero in an instant, uh, how were they going to manage 
those issues. And and now the, the government, having written that into the design, is blaming the <laughs> banks for not working properly. And do you remember, I remember that press conference, the Treasurer, I think, not the Prime Minister, was asked about this when he had taken to the podium. And he was asked, well, what happens between now and May when you actually finally pay this money back? And he said, oh, the banks can cover it. Just get a line of credit from the banks. Talk about half ass in relation to putting it together. And I know it's a crisis and I know things will go right and things will go wrong. This is actually worse than that, though. They did have a number of weeks before they made this JobKeeper announcement. And I would have thought a fairly basic early thing that you would want to get right would be, all right, there's a six-week gap between us announcing this and when we're going to actually funnel the money through. What the hell happens in the interim? And if your solution is just to say, oh, well, you know, I once worked as a temp in a bank, I reckon they can probably sort it out because let's be honest, none of these guys have ever been senior in private organisations. I think that's pretty pathetic frankly. And I expect more of our public policymakers and our politicians than something as half-assed as that, I have to say. So in practical terms, what's your sense of the difficulties that people are facing? I'm certainly seeing in social media and, and sort of commentary that comes in onto sort of newspaper articles where people can mm. sort of put in their commentary and elsewhere that uh, there is genuine, that this is not a theoretical problem, it's a genuine problem, is that uh, where you might say have 80 staff, but you've gone to zero uh, income or close to it, particularly if you're in entertainment or restaurant, pubs, those sorts of things, that uh, it costs a lot to keep those staff on the books paid uh, until that money comes in. in. In the real world, is this a real thing? It is, as I understand it. I mean, we've seen individual examples already emerge about where there's been exploitation uh, from employers or where there's been problems for employers trying to do the right thing and and get lines of credit from the banks. And we've obviously heard the Prime Minister uh, in his hypocrisy mouth off about this. But uh, it is a real thing. And it's not just, I believe, isolated examples, although that could be enough to cause problems. We saw isolated examples around the building the education revolution cause problems for the Rudd government in the aftermath of its stimulus rollout. And this is, you know, so much grander in scale and so much more half ass in design, I would argue, uh, in, the, in what we're seeing early on. But the real issue here, I think, Hugh, is that these, these organisations, even if, and this is what you're already saying, these organisations, even if they are trying to do the right thing and even if banks have all the goodwill in the world, in trying to get these things lined up, there is a gap there, isn't there? And that is actually where governments are supposed to fill the breach. I mean, private organisations or small businesses trying to hold it together or individuals already worried trying to ensure that they have a paycheck of some form coming in during the midst of the worst of the crisis in terms of its suddenness hitting, that's where government is supposed to fill the breach. It has a higher capacity to do that, both in terms of resources and clout and you name it. But here, it seemed to abrogate that responsibility to the banks. Uh, and, you know, again, throw in another irony, if I can, while I'm on this, the irony of expecting the banks to be able or willing to do the right thing. This is a government that always says the banks never learn, they don't do the right thing, et cetera, et cetera. So even just having the blind faith in the banks that the politicians seem to have had strikes me as passing absurd if they're taking the crisis as seriously as they should be and not wanting the gap to be a problem for people. 
So the problem for uh, the Morrison government is that um, is not in bashing the banks and that upsetting some people who are paying attention to it as you are. Uh, the problem will be, in, as I see it, is that if there is an actual hitch in the payments themselves getting to the people uh, who they're supposed to protect. So I think this argument with the back, with the banks, you know, deflecting the blame onto the banks is is kind of, as you say, it's fairly yeah, it's fairly unimpressive it's on a certain it's level. Cheap. But but the real the real problem for the government will be that when this these jobkeeper payments are supposed to come through and it requires an element, it's not excessively bureaucratic for something put together so quickly and of such scale, but it is bureaucratic. And if people find that for some reason the paperwork isn't exact they haven't been able to satisfy uh the ato because it's through the ato that it's going uh, and that they haven't got that job keeper payment flowing into those companies particularly if they've sustained wages in the interim for uh staff who are effectively not really working that's the moment i think where it could get into a uh, a, a monumental cluster uh, yeah. for the government and they have to be super aware we're not there yet because the job keeper payments haven't gone out to people uh but certainly one to watch in the politics of it and, quite apart the, from the pain of it oh yeah and the other one actually is i've been talking to a few people in private equity uh who i'm quite close to who have been making the point to me and this will be a watch this space one for further down the track but you know we all know private equity likes to swoop on a bargain essentially uh and times like this for some in private equity can be good times because if they're cashed up and if things are desperate and businesses are desperate, they can swoop. They've told me, against their own self-interest, I might add, in, in passing this on, that there are design flaws in the job keeper structure, where because it is tied to a, a, a sudden downturn in revenue that you can try to illustrate and then get access to that job keeper payment, they're factoring that into businesses that have lumpy revenue at the best of times that they could slide in and acquire businesses where there is, if you like, a government subsidy, which is perhaps not necessarily as worthy as in other areas because they haven't had a test, a retrospective test that's put in place in relation to how the job keeper has been allocated. Now, I don't want to get bogged so, so down implicit in, implicit, in Implicit in that then is a suggestion that at least some companies are going to be accessing job keeper when really uh, on a proper assessment of their business, they shouldn't be. Exactly. And, they're not doing the wrong thing by doing so, we have to be clear, because the government have done this so simplistically, which they thought there was virtue in the simplicity, given the magnitude of the crisis. And there probably so, is virtue in simplicity well, yes sometimes. And no. Things get too complicated. Well, I agree with that in terms of, you know, you don't want a whole bunch of detail at a time like this. But the way it's been put to me by the people I've spoken to is that there would be an equally simple out-the-other-side test that they could also make part of it so that if you do receive it and you're somebody who receives lumpy revenue, for example, there is an, a bottom line with your taxable assessment at the end of the year. So, for example, I think the way it was put to me was that, you know, if, if, the, if the business uh, is, is receiving a certain quantum of profit come tax time or come into financial year time, uh, then it would have to give it back. That doesn't strike me as unreasonable. Uh, the way it's structured is obviously the key there. But it was put to me that it could be a very simple test that's put in there. And when I asked this gentleman, uh, who's very senior in these, in these roles, why he thinks the government didn't do this, he just laughed. He said, because none of them would have ever worked 
in these areas. So they frankly just wouldn't have even known uh, that that was a simple test that could have been put in. And we've seen this time immemorial, haven't we, when it comes to politicians crafting legislation where the where business who are more across and more adroit of the details get the better of them. It happened to Julia Gillard and, and Wayne Swan when they were crafting the second iteration of the mining tax. And they did it in a room with the big miners and their lawyers and tax accountants where they basically crafted a second tier mining tax which didn't bring in any revenue. Uh, and, and this this happens all the time. So that, that's, that's, that's one to watch, I guess, is my point for the longer term. As Martin Ferguson, the uh, Labour Resources Minister at the time, uh, said when asked about why this uh, great mining tax that had cost Labour so much skin uh, wasn't bringing any tax, uh, Martin Ferguson would say, archly, it's doing exactly what it was designed to do. And that's because it was chiefly designed <laughs> by the mining industry. So... Uh, but exactly. tell me, while we're, while we're sort of vicariously learning something about the private equity business, your, your chums in this, what are they telling you? Are they feeling that the time is already now to go hunting? Or is oh, private a, equity yeah. still of a view that there's, uh, there's some waiting to be done for better bargains further ahead? There's a mixed response to that. Uh, like any good journalist, Hugh, I've got more than one source. And the, there is a genuine difference of view. So... Uh, one of the people I spoke to on this front was looking now. They were quite imminent in their design to, to grab bargains now. Uh, and that, that, that was based on not just the view that we might come out of it sooner rather than later, but the view that even if we don't, getting a good bargain now is still a bargain whenever we do come out of it. The other more conservative school of thought that I've, I've seen on this front has been a, to take a wait-and-see attitude uh, with a very strong view that the bargains are only going to get better uh, as the months roll on because of the depth of where this recession is heading or may head. And even if wrong on that front, it's a conservative approach, I guess, to not uh, jump in now, but to be prepared to, if you like, what's this, the phrase, don't catch the knife while it's falling. Uh, mm. Pick it up when it's been picked up and is already on the way up or is sitting dormant on the ground. So there are different schools of thought is the short answer. And the same goes with the property market, which is closer to the reality for people uh, talked to someone in their late twenties a couple of days ago who was, you know, who, who don't own a house, married couple, don't, you know, recently married, and seeing this as being perhaps the only opportunity they might get in their lifetime to actually buy into the market in a town like Sydney, um, because of, uh, you know, it got so inflated beyond the means of, of ordinary wage earners, um, mm. you know, and that and that here might be this once in a lifetime chance to to grab something as things fall. Um, but uh, this, these are high stakes in terms of individual people, couples, families, high stakes discussions over the kitchen table, how to hang on to a job, uh, how to stay sane. Yeah. And, and where might be an opportunity? Yeah, well, we, need, we need to go to a break, but it, it is fascinating, isn't it? I mean, the property market probably has further to fall. Uh, so the challenge becomes, well, interest rates are low, so it's a good time to have debt but you can only have debt if you can service that debt and you need a job in most people's cases to service debt, even with very low interest rates. And if the market doesn't pick up anytime soon, is there a rush into that? And also people have to be aware, this is not financial advice disclaimer, but people have to also be aware that when recoveries happen, historically, they tend to happen with interest rates heading north. Yeah. They're difficult times, aren't they? Let's take a quick break. We'll be uh, back in a moment with the Prof PBO. Fearing the apocalypse? 
brush up on your survival skills with every episode of Australian Survivor and the best of US Survivor on 10Play now. Welcome back. This is The Professor and the Hacker in episode 48. Um, Peter, what we're seeing really is two things going on with the uh, economy at the moment and and essentially with policy. One is um, how do we get the economy going again? you know, from social isolation back to a slight easing of those restrictions with those numbers looking more promising. We might leave that one. We've talked a lot about that. But the next thing is, how do we reshape the economy Ah. for the decades ahead, which is a much more fundamental shift already occupying the minds of serious-minded people? What's going to happen? Well, who knows? But I tell you what, I want to start with another rant on this one because we've heard... I believe, incredibly ill-informed, simplistic analysis from some quarters of government so far saying, oh, we need, wouldn't it be a good idea to have an ideas-led recovery? What a great idea. Let's go down that path. And then they've referred back in history to the 1980s with the microeconomic reforms of the Hawke-Keating era, as though that was some consensus-driven moment of bipartisanship uh, on the past, on the part, I should say, of all sides of politics. Now, I don't know what history books they've been reading uh, versus the history books that I've been reading, but I'm willing to hazard a guess that what they've been reading is the occasional sentence from history. And maybe I've actually made the mistake of taking a bit more time and read the actual books about what happened during that time. And Hugh, you would have seen it reporting directly on it as well. I didn't need the books. Yeah. (laughs) Now, here's the thing. There was not some grand compact going on, even within one side of politics during that time. John Howard got a copy of the Campbell Review when he was treasurer between 77 and 83, which recommended these microeconomic reforms, and he sat on it. Then the Labor Party in government decided to institute it, not always with the backing, by the way, of even the dries within the Liberal Party who wanted to go further, certainly not with the backing of the wets within the Liberal Party. The coalition fractured over this. The union movement saw a number of unions disaffiliate from the ACTU because of the accord that it struck with Labor. It was all highly contested. A large number of tax policies that were put in as offsets to income tax reductions were opposed around areas like fringe benefits tax by the then opposition. And that's not even to get to the business community, who certainly weren't marching down the street singing Kumbaya with Labor and the unions either. Well, I mean, I mean, remember the, the pension, the pension reforms, the pension reforms that Hawke put through, uh, the asset the test asset was test, enormous. Exactly. The asset test on the pension was disagreed with by the coalition. So was the fringe benefits tax, capital gains tax and non-deductibility of business entertainment expenses. These were all disagreed with by the coalition. This was not some, we're all linked in arms going, isn't this great consensus politics wins out. These guys haven't read history. What they've done is they've read some crappy paper by somebody that doesn't even know their own history. And then they've all turned around and said, oh, let's go back to the 1980s and have a consensus-driven well, reform well, agenda. It, it, the thing is it required courage. And I, and I mean, if you talk about different splits, there was clearly that was the, that was the fundamental first real opening of the split between Keating and Hawke, where yep. Keating was attached himself to the idea of, uh, of a goods and services tax, a consumption tax. Uh, they had the tax summit on it. And then uh, Hawke could read the play, that read the mood, I think, or perhaps was less courageous. And he decided that uh, they were going to drop what was called option C, which was essentially the, uh, yep. the goods and services tax. And uh, 
and that's where sort of you can see that that first moment where uh, where Keating kind of looked across at Hawke and going, "Mate, you don't have my back, do you?" And then, of course, famously, Keating ran against a GST when Houston put it up in the 1990s. So, but what about their read of history, Hugh? Like these politicians, they're supposed to know better, you know, and they're supposed they just fudge it or they don't know it, you know, one way or the other. This I've seen it, and, and maybe I'm sorry, but I'm going to tell not not you obviously because we're talking eruditely about this but some journalists as well you know they hear a politician say oh we need consensus driven reform like the 1980s then they parrot it into their copy as though that's a fact it's a complete fiction read a book rather than a comic <laughs> so <laughs> the day is not complete without a good pvo rant so uh, tick <laughs> that one off folks click um <laughs> drink the uh but then we come to what we're hearing from the government and, uh, and, and not just from the government, we're hearing from uh, Matthias Cormann expressing it probably more clearly than anyone, this notion that there will be aggressive deregulation. Uh, we've seen Tony Abbott writing a column in the Australian. Uh, it, it was not on the subject solely. But that was uh, fascinating, wasn't it? To say. That was fascinating. It was. But, but I mean, one of the things he talks about is, is green tape. So again, the attack on environmental regulations seen as an opportunity here in the name of getting the economy going again, is that in terms of uh, your rights at work, or indeed uh, the protections that still exist around environmental uh, arguments within development projects, infrastructure projects, mining projects, and so on, the strong hint is going that these are going to be kicked to the curb in the name Mm. of trying to breathe life back into a recovery. Um, is this the first hints of a really, really dirty battleground that we're going to see ahead? Well, yes, yeah, I think for reasons different to what the politicians have spruced, we may well see a recounting or a rewrite, a reversion, a, 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 a returned version of what happened in the 1980s, but not as consensus-driven politics, but actually as what it was, uh, which is highly contested, uh, dirty at times, uh, vicious and brutal, but who knows what the outcome will be. See, in the 80s, one of the reasons I think Labor was able to carry the day on some of these historic microeconomic reforms, the reforms, by the way, that led the credit, the bedrock uh, for both what Howard did and then for the ability of Rudd et al. to get through the GFC and the ability now, despite ballooning growth over recent years, for this government to be able to toss money at the problem in a way that overseas countries haven't been able to. Those microeconomic reforms were crucial, but but Labor were able to achieve them despite all the contestation and problems because it sat very neatly in the middle between the trade union movement on its left flank and on its right flank, in rudimentary terms, the, the coalition or at least the Liberal Party. Can a Liberal Party now do the same when there's more ballast, I would argue, on its left side Uh, in terms of unions and labour, then there is it sitting in the centre of this fight. I don't know. It's going to be fascinating to see how that all plays out. They might make labour look like dinosaurs if labour and the union movement fight against it, or they might lose the argument and the battle of ideas. Look, it's true. I mean, one of the things which definitely happened in in the 80s was a vigorous engagement with the population from the Prime Minister of the day and from the Treasurer, Hawke and Keating, to try to persuade the population, to try to educate the population, to take time to do so. But they operated, so, so is, is Morrison a Hawke? Is Frydenberg a Keating? Do they have those persuasive powers? And also, the other thing which 
Oh, you got to let me. So you gotta, you gotta, before you give us the other thing, you just on that. Friedenberg yep. is no Keating, I don't think, in terms of having a, a, a real ballast behind reform. And God almighty, Morrison surely is no hawk in terms of the ability to draw a consensus out of an incredibly contested space, unless he's learned something phenomenal from this crisis, I suppose. He would have learned some things. But then again, I've often thought, how would Hawke and Keating go today in an age of social media where the, point. Uh, the, the voices of dissent, of angry dissent, are amplified at every turn? We certainly see this in the United States, for example, would say some of those really really disturbing looking protests by people uh, confronting nurses and medical workers across heartland United States because they're demanding their freedom to, uh, to ease restrictions and get back to doing what they want to do um, to a certain degree egged on by the U S president, but let's not get distracted over there too much. The, the issues for anyone trying reform nowadays is that the voices of those who don't want it are amplified much more easily than they were in the 1980s when the mainstream media, that much loathed beast, was much more <laughs> central to the process yeah. and was also much more mainstream. It was a, it was a, it was a centrist, broadly centrist, uh, um, you know, curious, uh, I suppose, institution, if you could call it that. And that, that's, those times have changed. So if we look to the reforms that might be on offer, We've already heard from Albanese, Anthony Albanese today, saying that uh, you know he's happy to look at, uh, at at you know sensible deregulation and IR and all that kind of stuff, but says Labour won't agree to any reforms that disadvantage workers. Well, that's you know that's a that's a test which essentially is inevitably going to rule out most IR reform. So uh, that's going to that's going to be the type that the government. Yeah. Does. Well, yeah, and, and particularly because even even the Accord reforms. Uh, that, that Bill Kelty, uh, Secretary of the ACTU, was pushing in conjunction with Labor during the 80s. I mean, they saw workers worse off if you have a simplistic test of better or worse off. But what yeah. Kelty foresaw is the need to make those adjustments for the longer-term capacity of a continuing working class that wasn't worse off in the longer term. So, you know, that the definitions here matter. And it depends on whether they become political definitions of no worker can be worse off or if they become practical, thoughtful definitions of whether no worker can become worse off. And that's where you, I think, you know, there's that old saying about, it was, wasn't it um, Kerry Packer saying you only get one Alan Bond when he acquired nine or reacquired nine at a massive discount. You know, I, I fear that generationally you only get one Bill Kelty and we're not far enough away from his generation uh, to have whoever that person is at whatever moment within the broader movements. We also only get one crisis. God, we hope we only get one crisis of the scale of the one that we're in at the moment. And if there is an opportunity, we've already seen essentially Scott Morrison throw out, we've discussed it, the Thatcherite version of conservatism, tiny government, uh, you know, the sort of the hollowing out of society to a certain degree. Um, tax cuts which have 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 benefited the wealthy although they've also enabled the poorer to rise not rising at the same level as the wealthy have risen but now we have an opportunity and with where as they say ideology is dead uh, this is a government that's become a big government that's spending vast amounts of debt driven money to try and keep us out of here so what are the things that might be put in place 
that will make us a better society, like the Kelty view, not taking a narrow view, but a broad view of what makes a better society. And, uh, and these, these are exciting challenges for serious-minded policymakers who are willing to make the fight and the argument uh, you know, for the years ahead, because there is an opportunity here for us to possibly emerge as a, as a better society. There's obviously opportunities for, for whole areas of tax debate uh, to be reworked, and, and there's a lot of talk about that to make that more efficient. Um, you know, th these can be difficult times, but, but I just wonder, even from your histori historian's perspective, uh, a real opportunity, if they're very, very smart and thoughtful, and don't do as Turnbull says that politicians do, only look for the short-term electoral advantage, but actually mm. look towards building, you know, a better economic base. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think if, if we're glass half full about this, uh, the whole idea of, you know, never waste a crisis is, is really that, you know, this, this can be that moment. Uh, it's whether the politicians are up to it. I have to say whether the bureaucracy is up to it as well, because I would argue that the Canberra bureaucracy isn't perhaps as good as the Canberra bureaucracy once was, even if it's a little more diverse today, which I welcome. Uh, the, the, these are all good things. But in, in the minutes we've got left, Hugh, keen to get your thoughts on what you think the impact of the isolation of Australia for the foreseeable future is going to do to us because that fascinates me. You know, this idea that we might have limited or no international travel for a sustained period, the effect that has on commerce, uh, the effect it certainly has domestically on things like higher education and the tourism sector. How long do you think it's going to last and, and, and with what well, impact? Well, there's a couple of things, but does it make us more nationalist? You know, the, the globalists mm. are in retreat, the nationalists go there. That's not always a good thing. Uh, no. <laughs> particularly for a, for a, you know, multicultural a nation like ours. The short term, I'm concerned about mental health. I had a chat with uh, Lifeline and Beyond Blue this week, spoke to John Brogdon, the chairman of Lifeline and the CEO of, uh, of, of Beyond Blue, spoken to other veterans groups. Now, Lifeline, it's really interesting here. They're, they have a kind of a baseline, baseline number of calls, which they work on. It's about two and a half thousand a day. Uh, that was last year. It rose as soon as the bushfires started and from those bushfires, it never went down again. And then when coronavirus came in, it's gone up again on top of the long-term pain that people are suffering in bushfire areas. So it's about right. 25% ahead of where it was last year already. We have Anzac day as we record, this is coming up as it happens. So I learned the worst day for calls to lifeline is on a Saturday. And uh, we've got Anzac day falling on a Saturday. Uh, they are, you know, I spoke to someone who's in the veteran space saying that he is, quote, shit scared, that the combination of the pressures that are on veterans, just like everyone else in the community, they've got the same issues, job losses, you know, being cut off from family, being cut off from certainty and things that they thought they had in their future are suddenly far more tenuous. Plus, and you, you have to have some connection, I think, with the veterans world to understand how important something like Anzac Day is for veterans oh, as yeah, a sort of a yeah. cathartic experience, both ceremonial, but also social, a way to kind of reset for the year. You really, really get a feeling for how important that is. Veteran suicide is, is an awful scandal. By the way, Lifeline's number is uh, 13, 11, 14. If you listen to this, if it's raising any issues with you, do not hesitate to call. I've got enough people on the line there to, uh, uh, you've got extra volunteers on there to take your course and take the call and particularly over the next little while. I'm really concerned as others are in this field that um, 
we're just starting to feel uh, the mental health um, strains of this. And, and we're going to all have to be a lot more tender towards each other and supportive of each other uh, to get through. This is the uncertainty start to become new dread certainties that life is less than it once was uh, and the pressures that that brings. So beyond all other concerns about IR reform or about, you know, V-shaped, W-shaped recoveries, you know, even the coronavirus numbers and testing uh, levels, which are, which are increasingly positive for us at the time being, I think that thing is, is, is really important. We just need to keep looking after each other as, as, uh, as many communities have been doing. Yep. Well said, Hugh. Well said. I think we're kind of done for time. Um, we are. But There's look, this brief respite in the drilling behind me. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, maybe that's my chance to actually breathe some fresh air before heading off. Well, you can probably hear the footsteps of my children on the floor above me as they run circles. <laughs> I, I don't know what my wife's got them doing, but uh, uh, I'm sure it's entertaining. Uh, everybody stay well over this weekend. If you do know a veteran, or if you're part of that, ring, ring them up. Uh, better than text messages, uh, the psychologists say. Ring them, FaceTime them. Uh, and anyone else you know who's feeling a little bit uh, as if they're feeling the struggles going on at the moment, let's all uh, stick in there together and we'll be back again next week. See you. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. <laughs>